This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. I knew going to the press was always an option, except going to the press is fraught with enormous peril. You're touching the third rail. The last thing you want to do is be accused of going to the press in an unauthorized manner. But I knew ultimately after every single channel had been closed out, the only other place to go to was the fourth estate. And I knew as soon as I did that, it was a matter of when, not if, uh, I would be picked up, arrested, and or raided by the FBI. From Foreign Policy, welcome to I Spy, real-life spy stories told by the people who were there. On today's show, Thomas Drake was a senior executive at the National Security Agency, the bureau within the U.S. government that eavesdrops on global communications. His first day on the job was September 11, 2001, the day al-Qaeda attacked the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Drake was hired to deal with the glut of data created by the huge rise of Internet use around the world. But he grew increasingly troubled by something else, the way the U.S. government was targeting its own citizens for surveillance after 9-11. The NSA was formed by uh, Harry Truman in 1952. And so it was a Cold War creation, and it had a major identity crisis after the end of the Cold War, like who's the enemy? Because the existential threat of communism, and in particular the Soviet Union, no longer existed. Uh, The Soviet Union collapsed, you know, final collapses in 1992. So there was a period there post-Cold War where Internet exploded, and NSA was way behind the times. And there was a number of studies that had been done at NSA, both external and internal. And the bottom line was they needed to stir up the gene pool. That was sort of the bottom line. So you needed to hire people that had not grown up there, had not been promoted there, people that had other experience that would be of value to NSA in terms of meeting the demands and the challenges of the 21st century. And... They actually put ads for senior executives in a number of the national newspapers, including the Washington Post. And that's where I was reading one day in February of 2001. You know, it was a Sunday paper and I was looking at the classifieds and there was a whole like a slightly larger than like a quarter panel looking for nine senior executive different capacities. And even though I was doing really, really well as a principal in the dot com and which I was making very, very good money. I felt that call to serve my country again. I was certainly familiar with NSA because I'd been a contractor there for a number of years after I left the Air Force. And so I answered the ad for one of those positions. And my first day in the job was 9-11. And so I show up at Dark 30, which is around 5 o'clock in the morning, and that morning was incredibly pristine. I mean, this was before the sun was coming. You could just start to see the dawn's early light on the horizon. But it was one of those extraordinary late summer, sort of first taste of first fall day. It was just clear up and down the East Coast. And we ended up going to a scheduled briefing 
in the Legislative Affairs Office. I can replay all this. It's just easy for me to unwind it. And they were doing a briefing to this advisory group. And I remember an executive assistant opened up the back door and said, oh, there's been some accident. Some airplane flew into one of the World Trade Center towers. I sort of paused. I remembered there was a bomber that had flown in the 1930s. It was really foggy. It had flown into the Empire State Building. Well, not too long after that, same executive assistant opens the same door, says that the second World Trade Center tower had been hit. And I knew, I actually got up and said, America's under attack. And everything that happened in those first few days, weeks, and months after 9-11 set me on a very dark course. So the arrangement was that I would report to the SIGIN director's office. Uh, she was the number three at NSA. And I would follow her around for about a month or so just to learn the ropes. And after 30 days or so, I would make some recommendations and I would have a small team in which I would support her and the challenging demands that NSA faced, and particularly with the largest single organization NSA, which was the Signals Intelligence Directorate that she led. And NSA was way behind the times. They were used to hard targets. That's what they were good at. A lot of it involved encryption and cryptography and ciphers and codes, something I became extremely familiar with when I was in the military during the Cold War. And here was a sea drowning in a sea of data. And knowing more and more about less and less is one way to put it. Way behind the time. So that means there's a whole lot of stuff you miss. And so that where you could vacuum up what was rather discrete signals, well-known signals, here was just a sheer magnitude of the data streaming across all kinds of networks in digital form, packets, not circuits, but packets, ones and zeros. So the old analog systems were woefully inadequate for the digital uh, age. And so all kinds of stuff got missed. And yet after 9-11, everything was considered fair game. But here's the kicker. That made it even worse because now you could say, we're going to suck the ocean dry through a really, really small straw. So extraordinary number of false positives, not being able to properly link all this to make, make sense of it. NSA is basically drowning in all the data is another way of saying it. But this problem was actually solved with a skunkworks small team, and they had solved the big data problem. You don't have to suck the ocean dry. You don't have to take all the sand off the beach and park it somewhere else and then later try to sort through it all. You don't have to do any of that. You leave it all in place. You just watch the motions. You watch what's kicked up. You detect and you account for the patterns and how they, those patterns connect to each other over time. And the things that are outside of the norm, you know, then you recognize what matters in terms of those critical nuggets, especially if it's threat-related. There was a number of Skunk Wars projects, but the one that becomes central to this to myself and and how far off the beam NSA went was called ThinThread. ThinThread actually had solved not just the big data problem, but it had solved what was crucial 
to meeting demands, the challenge of demands, of making sense of vast amounts of data. 9-11 happened. It was one gigantic surprise, but it never should have happened. Because the critical innovation that had solved the big data problem was never put into the fight operationally. It was ready to go operational in late 2000, early 2001. Uh, it had already proven itself in the 2000 period uh, at an operational, it's just an NSA field site, proven that it was superior in being able to identify critical intelligence. But it had become such a threat to corporate solutions, to say it that way, and particularly a threat to a program called Trailblazer, which had been launched with great fanfare in the spring of 2000. I was actually on a red team six months later, said it's an utter failure. But that was all ignored because it was almost a $4 billion program at that time. It was by far the most expensive, single expensive program in NSA's history. But it was going to catapult, ostensibly catapult NSA into the 21st century. It never did deliver. It was an utter failure. It blew many billions, way beyond $4 billion over a six-year period before it sort of died uh, a quiet, ignominious death. However, what happened after 9-11 is crucial to understanding that ThinThread not only had solved that, but it did so by protecting the Fourth Amendment rights of U.S. persons. ThinThread was also in competitions, it turns out, with another program that was launched in the deepest of state secrecy called Stellar Wind. Stellar Wind was an umbrella program completely separate from Trailblazer in which NSA was the executive agent and had the authority to go anywhere for data, including data in the United States, and had special relationships with certain telcos to turn over data. And if necessary, NSA could use its enormous power, just like it used its enormous power to listen in uh, on other countries' communications, which was carte blanche because it was foreign. It wasn't domestic. Here, it's doing it domestically, in secret, in violation of the Constitution. So there was rumors that started to circulate, whispers in the hall, as it were, kind of well, behind closed doors, that... NSA was being given special powers, that the constraints that had been imposed on NSA starting in 1978 under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act because of abuses and violations of the Fourth Amendment in the preceding decades, whispers that NSA was listening in on the communications of domestic networks and was being given and had access to domestic data on anybody in the U.S. or potentially anybody in the U.S. Special equipment being brought in to create the types of collection platforms just like we did for foreign countries, which was carte blanche, right? Unless it was a U.S. person involved, over even overseas they were protected uh, by FISA. Uh, here, it didn't matter. I remember a former you know, NSA colleague, I have not talked about this in years, I never know what happened to him, but he said, I'm being asked to violate the Constitution by my uh, management chain because of 9-11. He says, I'm in, a, I'm in a really difficult place because they're saying it's national security and it's all been approved. 
I don't know how it's been approved. I don't know how it can be approved. These are people coming to me. And of course, I'm finding out myself through other channels. It began with phone numbers. A lot of that was, let's have special agreements created or expanded between us, NSA, and certain telcos, like AT&T, for example, and others. And then it expanded to email addresses and financial and web and just kept going. And of course, you had enabling acts to secretly interpret access to any and all business records under what's called third-party doctrine. So you have no reasonable expectation of privacy at all because it's not yours. It's a business record. Very convenient. And so I confronted my immediate supervisor. I said, what are we doing violating the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act? There were felony penalties for violating. It was, it was under Title 18 of the U.S. Code. You couldn't just listen in on a U.S. person. She demurred. But it was officially confirmed for me by the lead attorney, the Office of General Counsel. He said the program, uh, the, they called it the program. Uh, it was approved by the White House. Exigent conditions apply. And I said, well, you know, if the laws that exist don't work, why don't you go back to Congress, right? Modify the law, introduce new legislation. And he actually told me, with what we want, they'll say no. So for four and a half years, this program, almost four and a half years, this program was kept secret. No one knew. So what do you do? I can only tell you this. You're in a secret organization and you're staring into Pandora's box. And then guess what's staring back at you is the abyss. What do you do? You're listening to I Spy, a production of Foreign Policy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. We return to Thomas Drake and his story about the National Security Agency after 9-11. So I blew the whistle through every channel that existed, so all across government. But even in the secret side of government, there's mechanisms. If you have a reasonable belief, whether you're a direct eyewitness or not, it doesn't actually matter. I was both. I was both direct and indirect. If you have reasonable belief that government is violating the law, is engaged in wrongdoing, violating policy, statute, or a direct threat to public safety or health, then you can go through what are called channels. I ended up becoming part of two 9-11 congressional investigations as well as a DOD investigation. The last formal blowing of the whistle was with the follow-on director in November of 2005. And then the New York Times article came out, written by James Rison and uh, Eric Lichtblau. It was a bombshell above the fold, left-hand side, you know, top of the page, revealing for the first time publicly the existence of what was then referred to as the secret wiretapping program, violating the law. Although I was not part of that. I never had contact with New York Times. I had never had any interaction with any New York Times reporter. I had never had any contact with any reporter at all. But as a result of the publication of that article in the New York Times, I knew 
that I'd be on a target list right away because so few people knew about it and I'd already blown the whistle on the program internally and with Congress and other investigators. All proper channels, what are called disclosure, but the disclosure channels had be turned into exposure channels. And so in the end, I had to make a fateful choice. And so shortly after the beginning of 2006, uh, when they had launched this massive leak investigation in terms of the who were the sources of the New York Times article, I did contact a reporter at the Baltimore Sun. I knew going to the press was always an option, except going to the press is fraught with enormous peril. You're touching the third rail. The last thing you want to do is be accused of going to the press in an unauthorized manner. But I knew ultimately after every single channel had been closed out, the only other place to go to was the fourth estate. I had one chance to reach out to her uh, to make established contact. She had no idea who I was. I knew she was being surveilled by the government under another stellar wind program. And I ended up sending an encrypted message to her. And she had one chance to open it. It was password protected based on a what's called basically a challenge question. And then she answered it correctly. And I ended up providing that reporter with unclassified information, including information about this secret surveillance regime that had been launched in the deepest of secrecy domestically. And I knew as soon as I did that, my life as I knew it professionally was over. I knew that. That I had sabotaged by virtue of a choice I had made. But I knew that I exercised moral agency, and this was my final whistleblowing for the American public, to inform the public. It was a matter of when, not if. Uh, I would be picked up, arrested, and or raided by the FBI, or some combination thereof. I was getting ready to go to work. I was actually putting my tie on. I looked out the window. This is just a little after 7 o'clock in the morning. I'm seeing cars pulling up from two directions and FBI agents streaming across the front yard. My spouse is getting ready to take my son, who at the time was in middle school, uh, 12 years old, was getting ready to take him to school. Uh, and there was this really, really loud knock on the door. Uh, it was my son answer, actually answered the door. And he had the presence of mind um, to come to me. He said, uh, there's someone here to see you. <laughs> Yeah, they had a warrant, and they went through my house. They did read me Miranda rights. I was interrogated, and I cooperated with them for five months. But yeah, having your house invaded, and they spent nine hours in my house going through everything and taking all kinds of stuff away. Uh, and that was just the beginning, as it turns out. They started doing massive electronic uh, surveillance of me. Uh, even outside of NSA. Well, I knew electronically because of my training and background, they were attempting to break into my home networks. And then there was physical surveillance. I can't begin to tell you what it feels like to be sort of under the constant gaze of the government. Uh, they started uh, doing these random searches that were less than random with me in particular, based on my car, it was easy to identify. I was being followed pretty much anywhere I went. There was usually for a period of time, several months, 
There was actually unmarked cars at the end of my road. I'm on a dead-end road where I still live to this day. I became the target. I went on administrative leave. Um, I was in New York City clearing my head in uh, April. I got a phone call from the point of contact of one of the FBI agents. We need you to come in. And I was still cooperating at this point. And I went to their, they have a facility outside of D.C. and nondescript room, no windows. And they said, there's someone here to meet you. And it turned out I was a chief prosecutor. You know, he threatened me with spending the rest of my life in prison if I didn't cooperate with their investigation. And then in March of 2010, I was asked to come back with my attorney back to that same FBI facility. And there was the chief prosecutor, different one now, of course, because it was now it was all revamped. And three weeks later, I was very publicly indicted, 10 felony count indictment, five under the Espionage Act, uh, one for obstruction of justice and four for making false statements. And if all those together, the obstruction of justice, 20 years alone, if you add all the others up, it came to 35 years in prison. At that point, I was about to turn 51. I spent the next 14 months doing everything I could with the public defenders and the Government Accountability Project. I knew I'd have to influence the court of public opinion because everything was – it was classified, right? So they had special procedures put in place. They had to get a security officer. It's sealed. I mean they actually said that what I did – they actually asserted this, that what I did was worse than a spy and I would have a blood of American soldiers on my hands. A spy gets secrets in secret. What you did is worse than a spy because everybody got to read it, including the spies. There was a, a final hearing in terms of the judge you know, rendering what, what you're going to do. Right? It was July 15th. But the government's case was always um, built on sand, as it turns out, and it collapsed under the weight of truth because they couldn't prevail with the court in terms of arguing that I was that much of a threat or let alone I had any classified information or I had compromised national security. They dropped all the felony counts. I applied out to a minor misdemeanor for exceeding authorized use of a government computer under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And no jail time, there was administrative fee, but no fine, one year probation, 240 hours of community service, It was a five-year ordeal. But yeah, I went free. I mean, it's it was a physical release. As they kept piling on and piling on and piling on, that once it was actually lifted, it felt like I was escaping. That's Thomas Drake a former senior executive at the National Security Agency. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor is Dan Efron. Rob Sachs, Amy McKinnon, and Dan Haverty helped produce today's show. The interview with Drake was conducted by Amy McKinnon. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us. I spy at foreignpolicy.com. If you like the show... Please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. 
Foreign Policy subscribers can sign up to get bonus episodes each week in your podcast app. Go to foreignpolicy.com slash iSpy. If you're not a subscriber, you can still get access to additional excerpts and interviews by joining iSpy+. For details, go to foreignpolicy.com slash iSpy. You'll also find a link to our Facebook page, where you can get the latest updates and hear directly from the producers of iSpy. Next week on the show, CIA officer Martha Peterson handles one of the most valuable KGB agents of the Cold War until the Soviets close in. In the barrel of that pen, we had put a reservoir of poison so he could bite down on it and die, basically. That's next week on I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale.